Let's open together to God's word, page 317, 2 Samuel 17. 2 Samuel 17. David has prayed, O Lord, frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. Make it foolish. And so Ahithophel gives advice to Absalom how he should fight. And then Hushai comes in and gives bad advice, but it appeals to Absalom's vanity. And he takes that advice. And now he's going out to fight Absalom in the revolt against his father, fight against David and his people who have fled Jerusalem and gone across the Jordan River. Now Absalom's going after them. 2 Samuel 17, verse 24. Then David came to Mahanaim. He's across the Jordan River. And Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Huge army. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Mekir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, And Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the man said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and said and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him. 
Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak tree. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel and Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom's monument. This is God's word. May he bless us, build our lives by brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of our reading, we have two monuments to Absalom. Did you see them? Did you read about them? One is a monument that Adam or Absalom had built for himself, it says, to himself. I'm sure it had his name written all over it. Absalom is great or something like that. Or to Absalom the great. Because he said, I don't have any sons to take my place. And so I have to be remembered somehow. Now we read earlier in 2 Samuel 14 that he had three sons and one daughter. The daughter's name is given Tamar. The sons' names are not. So we suspect that they died young and there were no sons surviving. And so he built this monument to his greatness. Then there's another monument that comes just before a pile of stones to mark his grave. The man is dead. The revolt has unraveled and fizzled. And this monument of Absalom, which is intended to be for his fame, is turned around in God's providence and grace and now becomes a monument to his shame. And that's a great and huge comfort for the saints. Because Absalom is the Antichrist, the one who represents the forces of those who oppose Messiah's throne, God's anointed one, Jesus Christ, who's represented by David. And God is showing us here, also in the new covenant, that the power of the kingdom of Antichrist cannot win. Though it might look so strong and so impressive and so mighty with all the men of Israel coming after David, God will see to it that it unravels and fizzles and the kingdom of Christ wins. Now we're tempted to look at the greatness of the kingdom of Antichrist and see that's where the power is. That's the side that's gonna win. That's why Judas joined it. Don't believe 
what your eyes see in this world. Because what's true is what God says, his promises, that Christ shall have the victory. Even though the powers of darkness and the power of Antichrist can look so strong, they are not. So that's what we see here. This monument, which was built to be a monument to Absalom's fame and Christ's shame, David's shame, is turned around by God's grace. Remember, the God who's subversive, who undermines the kingdom of darkness. It's turned around and becomes instead a monument to Absalom's shame and Christ's fame. Absalom's monument In God's grace, it's a monument to God's kindness. That's what we see first in this passage, the kindness of God to David's side, David and his army. Look at verses 24 through 26. In the aftermath of Hushai's counsel, that appeal to Absalom's vanity, don't go after just one man, grab a huge army, go in front, ride your horse, your mule or your donkey and look great and get everybody, get David and all his men and have a great bloodbath. And so now the battle lines are drawn. David and his men have fled Jerusalem. They're up by Mahanaim in the forest, in the north part of the forest of Gilead, east side of the Jordan River. Now Absalom and his army, all the men of Israel, come across also and enter into the force of Gilead. The battle lines are drawn and the uh, commander of Absalom's army is Amasa. Hmm, Happens to be a relative, David's cousin's son. David and his men are on the other side of this battle. They have fled quickly from Jerusalem. What do they have? They have nothing. They're homeless, they're hungry, they're hiding, and they're heartbroken. They have nothing. Except God's promise. Remember his covenant made with David in 2 Samuel 7? I will make of you a kingdom that lasts forever, and your son shall never cease to sit on the throne. Not Absalom, but a different son. So David's got God's promise on his side. And it's a reminder, congregation, that even when we have nothing, we're weak, we're helpless, we appear to be on the losing side. When you have God's promise, when you have God's word, you're the winner. When you have God's promise, you have everything, even when in worldly terms you have nothing. And God has all the means at his disposal to give you what you need to supply you for victory. And that's what happens. What happens next? Verses 27 through 29. Suddenly out of the blue, three people appear with a large caravan of blessings for David and his people. Here come first Shobi. This guy's an Ammonite, the son of Nahash the brother of Hanun, the guy who despised David and tried to take out the men that he sent to bring him a gift when he became king to comfort 
him in the death of his father Nahash. I don't remember that from earlier in 2 Samuel. Shobi. And he's teaming up with Makir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Do you remember that? Makir, the son of Amiel of Lodabar. Who's that? We met him in 2 Samuel 9. That's where Mephibosheth lived. Hiding out in shame. Being taken care of Makir. And then David took him and elevated Mephibosheth, the lame son of Jonathan, remember, and gave him a place at the royal table where he feasted every day. Makir. And then that godly old man, 80-year-old man, we'll read later, Barzillai, the Gileadite. And these three guys are working as a team. It makes me think perhaps that Shobi, the Ammonite, has actually become a part of Israel, though we're not told. But they're working as one team. Loyal defenders of David's reign, committed to the cause of Christ, realizing that David is God's chosen one. And they bring them beds and basins for washing and cooking. And they bring them food and drink to supply their needs. This is an amazing story of God's kindness, benevolence, and charity for David and his people. Because do you remember why David has been run out of Jerusalem? It's a consequence of his sin. He's not worthy of the throne. He's not worthy of the kingdom of Christ. And that's why when he's chased away, he doesn't fight back and he says, I put my life in the hands of the Lord and he will do what seems good to him. If he wants me back, he'll bring me back. And here's a sign from the Lord that his pleasure is with David and he's supplying him and he's preparing him and equipping him and his men for war to restore his kingdom. What kindness of God to show such mercy to David who doesn't deserve the kingdom and to feed for him and his people and to care for them because he loves them. Here's his bride in the wilderness being chased by the Antichrist, Revelation 12. And yet God protects them and cares for them. It's a word of encouragement. Who here is worthy of a place in Christ's kingdom? Aren't your sins and failures and mistakes so great that you should be run out of town and run out of his kingdom? Yet for Christ's sake, he loves you. Because this is Jesus' throne, Jesus who sheds his blood and dies and pays the ransom, pays for our sins suffers in our place to redeem us for his sake. God loves us and gives us a place in his kingdom, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is worthy. Will you remember that? When you see that you don't deserve a place in God's kingdom and in his church because of your unworthiness, that you rest in the worthiness of Christ and know that it pleases him for Christ's sake still to restore you, lift you up, put you back on your feet and give you a place in his kingdom. There's another thing I see here. 
we see here. The risk that Shobi and Makir and Barzillai take to supply David and his people. What a risk. Absalom's on the winning side, apparently. He's got the greater army. He's coming, chasing down David. And if you're caught supplying David and his men, death is on the way. What a huge risk. They're willing to give up everything to side with David when the enemy is coming against them to destroy David. But that's what God's people do when the world is against you. And the foes of Christ want to destroy, they want to take you down, drag you out, destroy you, that you still say, Christ is my life. I side with him. Even though it costs everything I have, I will take the risk because I'm really not losing anything. You gain everything when you give to Christ because he's the winner. He's the ultimate winner. One small illustration. A guy in grade 12. Popular. But also a serious follower of Jesus Christ. And a couple of the guys in his class, a couple of his friends, they were a tight group. Committed sin in the school. And an unpopular girl in their class told it because it needed to be told and the guys were ruthless toward that girl and verbally and socially attacking her and this one guy in grade 12 popular but also serious about following Jesus risked all his friendships all his popularity to serve Christ And in front of his friends, he stood up for that girl. It's a small thing. Yet that's what the Christian life is made of, of Shobis, Makirs, and Barzillais, who risk their lives to stand up for the name of Jesus even when everyone might be against them. They might lose everything. It's a beautiful picture of the worthiness of Jesus Christ to have your allegiance and my allegiance and to give our gifts to him and his kingdom and to put ourselves on the line every day. Secondly, we see Absalom's monument serves as a monument to God's curse and judgment. Now we have the battle. Very little attention is paid to the war itself. Most of it is to the death and the disposal of Absalom. Because that's the focus. The routing of Antichrist. So David arranges his army into three groups. 18 verses 1 and 2. A third of them under the command of cousin Joab... A third under the command of another cousin, Abishai, Joab's brother. And a third under, remember, Ittai, that Gittite, the man from Gath, the Philistine who had become a follower of God. He was converted to God. And when he wants to follow David and his men out, says, no, no, no. 
you're a foreigner, you're new here, just stay back, don't risk this. I will go where my king goes, he says, and he follows him, Ittai, he's the third guy. And then David states his intention to go with the army to fight. I will go with you. Do you see how beautiful that is? Do you remember what happened in chapter 11? David's backsliding. And when Israel goes out to war against the Ammonites, David says, I'm staying home. I'm taking it easy. I'm just going to be taking a vacation and relaxing. And that's when he commits the sin with Bathsheba and then kills Uriah to cover that sin. And now he's saying, I'm going with you. Do you see the repentance here? Do you see the work of God? Do you see the beauty of this moment? Do you see what God can do with you when you've fallen far? How he can lift you up again, make you a new man, give you new energy for the kingdom? Come to him, trust in him, give your life to him, and you'll be amazed with how he can turn your life around. But David's men wisely say, no, 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 that would not be good. You can do better managing the war from the city. You stay here at the gate. You manage the war. You pray for us. You send supplies. You give advice and arrangements when people come to you. And we'll do the fighting out here. You fight from the city. We'll fight out here. And David humbly complies and says, okay. And then gives that request. But please deal gently with my son Absalom. And we want to spend more time on that next time. What does that mean, that love of David for his lost son? Is that good? Is that bad? Don't want to spend time on that right now, but we'll need to deal with that later. So then they have the battle, verses 6 through 8, in the forest of Ephraim, where David and his men win the war. And Israel, Absalom's armies, lose some 20,000 men in one day, with more being killed, devoured by the forest than by the actual war. What a tragic waste when people throw their lives into the service of the Antichrist. What a waste of life and of lives. Brothers and sisters, if you lose your life in service, may it be in service to Christ the King, not in service of sin. As Christ is worthy. And he gave his life to merit eternal life for you. Then we come, verses 9 through 18, that long section, 10 verses, to the death of Absalom, followed by David's grief over the loss of his son. Now think about how he died. Pay attention. Pay attention. This is no accident. He's riding his mule through the heavy forest. And either his hair got entangled in the thick branches, the thick brush of an oak tree, or his head got wedged in the crook of two branches. We don't know, but one way or another, his head got snagged in the branches. Well, his mule kept on going and he hung there. 
He hung there from the tree, suspended in midair. It says between heaven and earth, verse 9. His head wedged, his hair snagged, and he's hanging from a tree. And someone saw him there, somebody from David's side, but he didn't touch him because of David's plea to deal gently. But he reported it to Joab, who said, you did what? You saw him and you didn't kill him? And they begin to discuss, I'm not wasting time on you, I'm going there myself. He takes three javelins and throws them into Absalom's heart. And then 10 men of Joab finish the job and kill him the rest of the way. Now, Joab's a ruthless man, but I believe he did the right thing here in killing the Antichrist and rescuing Israel, the land of Israel, from this pretender, this enemy of the kingdom, this evil man. And so we have Absalom, the vain, self-centered, self-loving, good-looking pretender. He met his end in a pit under a pile of stones but think about this he died hanging from a tree he died hanging from a tree does that ring any bells Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 cursed is he who hangs from a tree this man is under God's curse He's perishing under God's judgment for rejecting God's anointed one, for fighting against the God of heaven and pursuing himself and loving his own ways, for following Satan. He dies under a curse, and there he is, suspended between heaven and earth, As if to say, he's not worthy of the earth and he's not worthy of heaven. And that's what hell is. Hell is God's heaven rejecting you and God's earth. Get off my land and sending you into a place where there's neither heaven nor earth, but just the pit of fire. And that's where Jesus went. Cursed is he who hangs from a tree. We're all by nature in the spot of Absalom, fighting against God, going our own way, following Satan to do his own will, in love with ourselves and our own opinions and our own desires and trampling over other people and rejecting God to have our own way. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned each one to his own way. We all deserve to hang from a tree under God's curse. Jesus went there. It says in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The point is, we don't have to die the death of Absalom under a curse. None of us 
Because we have the Lord Jesus Christ who went there for sinners. Who said, I'll take the place of those who rebelled against you, Heavenly Father. I'll go there. I'll come under their judgment. I'll become a curse. And he did. And the Father, in great love, sent his Son to be put in our place. So that rather than dying the death of Absalom, we may be set free. Hallelujah. Not one of us here needs to die under God's wrath. Will you confess your sin of rebellion? Of living against the Christ? Living for Satan? Living for sin? Loving your sin? And will you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today? And will you say to him, Lord Jesus, save me from my sin, set me free from the curse? And will you believe that Jesus hung from a tree for you so that your curse is gone? And now instead of curse, you have blessing? Then instead of being rejected by both heaven and earth, you get both heaven and earth? Earth now, walking with the Lord, heaven when you die, and when Jesus comes back, heaven will come down to earth. And we'll get to enjoy both in blessed perfection and glory. That's what Jesus bought for us when he hung from a tree. And then we see thirdly, Absalom's monument by God's grace is turned into a monument of God's kingdom. We read that Absalom was killed and all Israel went home. The war was over. The Antichrist was defeated. And David wins. And the kingdom is being restored to him by the kindness of God. And when things were so dark for Christ's kingdom, and it looked like the kingdom of Jesus, the throne of Jesus was done for and the promises of God were dead. God was there. He was there. He was there in Christ to undo Absalom's kingdom and to restore God's kingdom. He was there. He was there to bring down Antichrist's kingdom and raise up Christ's kingdom. God was doing a mighty work even in the worst of times. And we have to realize that in Western culture where the days are dark and we worry about our kids and our grandkids and say, will they survive these times? When the Antichrist is so aggressive saying, if you stand up for Christ, it's game over for you. We're coming after you. And we're gonna take away your freedoms. And we're gonna take away all your privileges. And we can despair. And this is a reminder that all the monuments around us to glorify the kingdom of Antichrist 
are going to fall. So don't live for them. Don't believe in the lies. Because pretty soon Absalom's monument is gonna stand parallel to the pile of stones that sit atop his body. God is doing a mighty work even in the worst of times. Think a thousand years later, even when David's son Jesus is being pushed out of the city of Jerusalem, the forces of the Antichrist, both Jews and Gentiles, after him, and finally they put him on the cross, which is a monument to the victory of Antichrist, the cross. God turns that cross around and now it's a monument to the victory of the Christ. That's how he turns things around. That cross, the symbol of shame, now becomes the symbol of Christ's fame and victory. That's the way God works. He catches the crafty in their own craftiness. He catches the wise in their foolishness and the vain in their own vanity like he does Absalom. That's how God works. We have an incredibly wise God, smart God, good God, who will never let evil win the war against his kingdom. He always outsmarts the smart, overpowers the powerful, and outshines the shiny ones. That's our God. And the cross, which was a monument to Antichrist and looked like it won, is an everlasting monument to Satan's shame and Christ's fame. God has turned everything around in Jesus Christ. You want to belong to him. And you want to trust in him and you want to invest your life in him because there's the victory, there's the victory, no matter what things look like. Don't judge reality by sight, but by faith. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the good news of 2 Samuel 17 and 18. Again, we praise you that the monument which was intended for the fame of the Antichrist becomes a monument to his shame. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the confidence and encouragement this gives us in these times when Antichrist is flexing his muscles and aggressively pursuing the people of God. And the bride is in the wilderness, but you protect her. She is safe. You provide for her. She is well. Help us to see that. Be encouraged and emboldened by that, like Shobi and Makir and Barzillai, to invest our lives in the great anointed one of God, for he must win the battle. Amen.